Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 50. It'll provide a little bit of context for our sermon, which is coming from Acts chapter 16. So in a moment, I'm going to read from Acts 16. But first, let's look briefly at Genesis chapter 50. It's the final chapter in the book. And it presents to us, according to some commentary, commentators at least, the main theme of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, before before Mamre, which Abraham bought with a field with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that his father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us, and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. When his brothers also went and fell down before his face, they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is to this day, to save many people alive, now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them. And spoke kindly to them. Amen. This refrain has echoed down throughout the church. What you meant for evil, God has meant for good. It is in fact, arguably, the refrain in the book of Genesis. Time and time again, we see the enemies of God, and I am afraid to say the family of God, giving themselves to what is evil and attempting to do what is evil. You read the story of Abraham, that great father of the faithful. And boy, every other chapter, that guy's just getting himself into a lot of trouble. And what he means for evil, God uses for good. He was the church father, St. Augustine, who beautifully observed, my God is so good, he takes evil and makes good out of it. My friends, the reality of our lives is that we must enter heaven through many sorrows. We must achieve glorious rest through many tears. Indeed, the place in which we find still water and green grass only exists on the far side of the valley of the shadow of death. And yet, all that in this life is meant for evil is used by God for good. He is wise. He is good. We can trust him to bear us along this troublesome road with peace and grace. 
with this hope in our hearts, turn over to Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read this morning from Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 19 through 40. This is the second half of the chapter. Acts 16, verses 19 through 40, we see here Paul and Silas in Philippi. And they have just completed the miraculous healing of a certain slave girl. This is the fallout to that healing. Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 40. Here again, the word of the Lord. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to observe, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, And to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers Hold these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them 
and departed. Amen and amen. This past week, I began reading a biography of the O.P. church planter and seminary professor at Westminster, Jack Miller. It's a good little book. It's entitled Cheer Up. I like that. Cheer Up. In it, the professor who just passed away of counseling, David Paulison, tells the story of when he was a young elder in Jack Miller's church. And he was struggling with a particularly sticky and difficult situation in the congregation. That sometimes arises. I know it comes as a shock to you. But, but in some churches, there are sometimes difficult situations to deal with. And as this young elder was filled with self-doubt, with fear, with dread, and with worry that he was going to make a great mess of this situation, common, again, for young elders, middle-aged elders, and old elders as well, that fear and that dread that you're, you're just going to ruin the work, you're just going to ruin the people you're trying to serve. He had spent a long time in prayer with Jack Miller one day, something for which Jack Miller was famous. And as he was about to depart, Jack Miller said aloud to the air, as if musing to himself, to no one in particular, grace means courage. Those three little words sank into the turmoil of his heart and stuck deep roots into his soul and bore great fruit over the decades that followed. That whenever he was faced with a situation that was daunting or dreadful, whenever he was filled with fear or with worry, David Pallison would return to those three words, grace means courage. We have an extraordinary text before us this morning in which we see the extraordinary courage of Paul and Silas. But I want us to think this morning not primarily about the amazing example that Paul and Silas set us, but of the amazing source of their courage. See, there is a fountain to their hope, a fountain to their peace, and it is Jesus himself. The good news for us this morning a fearful and worried lot, is that Jesus' peace will give us courage. It's that Jesus' peace will set us free. My friends, this is the truth for us. Jesus' peace sets you free. So draw near to Him. So stay close to Him. Now, to think about this a little bit, we have to actually begin with the verses just prior to verse 19. Because it says in verse 19 that the masters saw that their hope of profit was gone. This hope of profit that evaporated before their very eyes was a young girl, was a certain slave girl, who we see in verses 16 through 18 had been in three-part slavery. She had been possessed by a spirit of divination. She was enslaved to the power of Satan. But secondly, she was enslaved to her masters, for they had gained great profit through her. They were exploiting her. 
She was enslaved to their greed. Thirdly, she was enslaved to her neighbors and her society who were using her to discover their future. They were using her to find out what lay ahead for them. This woman, shackled and chained three times over to Satan, to masters, and to society, was set free by the proclamation of the name of Jesus Christ in verse 17. Verse 18. Paul turns to her in annoyance and declares, commands, come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And that name sets her free. It sets her free from the satanic power that possessed her. It sets her free from the prophet greedy masters. It sets her free from the abusive intentions of her community. She is free. But the city is not rejoicing. In verse 19, her freedom does not bring the joy it should have brought. Rather, her masters are indignant and enraged, for their hope of profit was gone. If it wasn't clear in the previous verses, it is most certainly clear in this verse. They loved wealth more than they loved her. They loved greed more than they loved God. And indeed, this thing had corrupted them so much they could not even enjoy her freedom. My friends, slavery is not an ancient problem, gratefully forgotten in our post-industrial, highly technologicalized age. I would love to see the billionaires at the back end of the abortion industry to find their hope of profit gone. Would it not be wonderful to see the billionaires at the back end of the pornography industry to see their hope of profit gone? Slavery and chains are not gone. Our society yet has them among us. We just don't parade them through the streets. Instead, we abduct them late at night, throw them into the back of dark vans, and sell them to the highest bidder. The slave trade is alive and well, and it's in the streets of America. Their hope of profit sustains unspeakable tortures and abuse. And would it not be lovely to see the name of Christ crush their hope of profit? The days of abolition are not long gone. We need them back. In which the church recovers this conviction that it is the name of Jesus Christ that tears down strongholds, that brings an end to slavery, that brings an end to the hope of profit. We can even turn inward as we look to one another in the struggles within our pews and within our homes and within our hearts. How many have this week felt the shackles and chains of sins you thought long gone? How many this week have felt the rub on the wrists of your heart of shackles and chains you thought Christ had set you free of? And yet the clinking of the metal is there in your mind. As you realize, I'm not in glory yet. My friends, we need a Christ who is great enough to set us free. A Christ who is great enough to persist in keeping us out of the prisons that we so constantly return our souls to and revisit again and again. With this, 
hope of profit evaporating in society, they resolve to put an end to it with violence. When you touch the livelihood of humans, they do not respond well. When you preach the name of Christ, which sets people free, you are necessarily assaulting the economic systems that are built on slavery in our society. And that is insertion of the justice of the good news of Jesus Christ necessarily will bring ruin to those pieces of society that profit from injustice. And they will react with violence. They will react with hatred and bitterness. The masters physically grab Paul and Silas and physically drag them into the marketplace before the judgment seat of the Roman authorities. The magistrates come out and they hear a three-part charge. These men being Jews. Were you struck by the fact that out of a four-member party, only two were chosen? Why didn't they seize Luke? Why didn't they drag off Silas, or Timothy rather? Because Luke and Timothy are Gentiles. This is racism. The Romans have seized the two Jews and have assumed that these Jews are of lower life form and to be easily abused and mistreated in their society. God, of course, gets the last laugh when both of these Jews are actually Roman citizens protected by Roman law. Oops. Secondly, they accuse them of exceedingly troubling the city. Now remember the actual source of this crime. They set a slave girl free. But such liberty is evidently troubling to this city. Indeed, it really is. Because it brings an end to that economic hierarchy that depended on slavery. My friends, let us see clearly that we mean to trouble this city. We mean to destroy those parts of this city that thrive on injustice and abuse, that profit from the mistreatment of fellow human beings. Yes, we do mean to exceedingly trouble this city, that parts of it that thrive on evil. But thirdly, they teach customs that are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. And this they compare the religious nature of Jews to the religious nature of Romans. They put forth their monotheism, but we Romans are polytheists. They put forth their invisible God, but we believe in idols. Most of all, and most troubling to Roman cities, they put forth Jesus Christ as king and head of the nation. And we worship Caesar. And we have no king but Caesar. In this way, Paul and Silas are truly the worst of all humanity for a Roman civilization. They're Jewish. They're troublesome, and they're traitors. My friends, let us beware that we understand rightly the call of Christ upon us, that he has summoned us to betray human civilizations to their doom, that the kingdom of God might thrive in their absence, that he has indeed called us to trouble our cities, to trouble them with the preaching of peace, and the giving of freedom. This is what he has called us to do. And they respond angrily. The multitude rises up, and they are enraged too. Remember, 
Their future telling girl is now free. They have lost their object of abuse, too. And they rise up together and the magistrates act swiftly, unjustly. They don't wait for witnesses. They don't actually ask the accused to give an account for themselves. They do not hold trial. No, they immediately proceed illegally and unjustly to punishing these men. They tear off their clothes, throw them naked to the street, and rip out the rods and begin to beat their backs. When many stripes were laid upon them, when the skin was pierced and the muscle pulsing and bruising and the blood oozing onto the ground, they then drug them to the prison and commanded the jailer to keep them secure. So was he exercised by the strict command that he put them into the innermost part of the prison, the hardest one to get out of, the deepest, darkest, most miserable core of the prison. And there he locked their feet in the stocks so that those opened oozing wounds of their back could lay in the dirt and filth of the floor so that they could not move into a more comfortable position so that they could there enjoy the full expanse of their agony. My friends, Christ calls us to carry a cross. This is not some apostolic anomaly. This is not some weird story out of Acts. We receive at our house, on a regular basis, a magazine called Voice of the Martyrs. The children and I read it in turn. We pray through it. They get geography credit for it. And we see story after story after story where our brothers and sisters are slandered in the streets, beaten by the magistrates, imprisoned and punished for loving Christ and setting other people free. This is not some ancient tale. This is not some far-off experience. This is indeed the normative condition that Jesus promised for the church of Jesus Christ. That we should have opposition. That we should have enemies. This is the reality that is embedded in our evangelism. That is embedded in our church planting. No wonder we're afraid to do them. They necessarily stir up opposition. They necessarily stir up our enemies. My friends, we must discover not the secret to evangelism that has no cost, but to finding the one who is worth paying the price for. This is what Paul and Silas have found, an anchor, a root, a reason to persist in spite of the pain, to linger and to continue. And we see this in verse 25. We find the heart of Paul and Silas laid bare through their sorrows and their stripes There on the floor with their ankles chained. There with their bodies aching and thriving from pain. Their minds spinning. What is Jesus doing? They are praying. And they are singing hymns to God. They are casting their hearts into the heavens as the psalms open up within them. They are doing it not silently as we often do within our own minds. 
No, indeed, their prayers are rising out loud and their songs are rising so that the prisoners can listen to them. They are filling that prison with the praises of God and the prayers of the saints. They are establishing in that house of horrors a heavenly place of worship. They are bringing forth the glory and the goodness of their God into the very darkest places of the world. One of my favorite turns of phrase from the Apostle Paul is at the end of the book of Philippians, where he writes to this church in Philippi that he is here founding in these verses. And at the very end, writing from Rome, with a Roman soldier shackled to his wrist, he says, those in Caesar's household greet you. Because you know what Paul considers a security guard attached to his wrist? A captive audience. Do you know what he considers the deepest, darkest, innermost part of a prison? A prayer room. A place of worship. There is no hell hole on earth that you cannot reach heaven from. So great is the goodness of your God. So great is the grace of your God that they may take your freedom, they may take your family, they may take your peace and joy, but there is no way they can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Romans chapter 8. Paul and Silas pray and sing praise to God because He is there with them. They are not alone. He is with them. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And there in the deepest, darkest pit in prison, they are not alone. He is with them. He did not forsake them. The proof of his presence, the proof of his peace ruling in their hearts is not only the prayer and the praises that are spilling out of them, is not only the the warm piety that they express, It is also the tremendous earthquake that follows. Have you ever noticed that when God shows up, there tends to be an earthquake? So Israel comes out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They get to the Mount Sinai. And what happens? God comes down and Mount Sinai starts dancing. Psalm 114. When God shows up, there's an earthquake. Elijah runs off to Mount Sinai, fleeing for his life from Jezebel. God shows up and what happens? A furious storm strikes the mountain and it begins to shake. Here again are Paul and Silas, not on a mountaintop, but deep in the heart of a prison, singing of the God who is with them, the God who knows them and loves them, with unshakable faith rooted in the promises of Christ. And all of a sudden, there's that earthquake. But this isn't just any old earthquake. What does earthquake normally do to buildings, right? I mean, look at this earthquake. It shakes the foundations of the building. And then the doors fly open and the chains fall off. You know what doesn't happen when you shake the foundation of the building, at least in this case? The building doesn't fall down. What kind of earthquake shakes so violently that the doors fly open, the chains fall off, and the building stays up? God's earthquake. God's earthquake that says, you cannot keep my people in prison. God's earthquake that says, let my people 
go. He is a God determined to set his people free. A God determined to come and visit us with salvation. He has once shaken the earth. He will once more shake heaven and earth together. That his people might go free. My dear friends, have you felt the shackles and chains of sin this week? Then I proclaim to you this morning, he means to set you free. He will do it. Have you felt the shackles and chains this week? Where you have struggled deeply with the sorrows of this world and the sorrows of your heart. I swear to you, he means to set you free. And he will not rest until he has shaken heaven and earth together that you might go free. He is the Prince of Peace, and He means to see you walk in peace. He means to uphold you in grace, and He will do it. They are loosed and set free. But now, just as the liberty of the slave girl exposed the shackles and chains on the hearts of the masters and the people of Philippi, So the freedom of Paul and Silas now exposes the great slavery at work in the jailer. You see this jailer? He is a monster. And yet he himself has been overcome. He, in verse 27, awakes from the shaking of the earth. And he hears and sees the foundations of the building thriving and writhing. He races out and he draws his sword. He sees the chains on the floor. He sees the doors open and he concludes the only thing he can conclude. They're gone. They have fled. He turns the sword point upon his own chest. Failure to produce the prisoners when the magistrate's calls is a capital crime. He will die in the morning. And he will not die slowly or easily. I'm sorry, he will not die quickly or easily. He will die slowly and painfully. To cut off in his despair, having lost all hope of life, he puts the blade to his chest, but Paul cries out in verse 28, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. This is a Roman soldier who is not afraid of a sword's point. He turns it upon his own flesh, Fearlessly, This is a Roman soldier who has retired and is making his income by chaining others, by presiding over their imprisonment. It's a fairly lucrative post, actually, in Roman society. And this man is getting rich, just like those masters, off the slavery of others. And yet he himself, in this very moment has become so desperate he's ready to take his own life because he cannot escape the slavery and chains of his Roman society. He is ready to perish. But it is the voice of Paul, a loud voice, a saving voice, a voice that just a few days, just a day before, had cried out to the girl, I command you in the name of Christ, come out of her. Now Paul, with a loud voice, cries out to the jailer, I command you in the name of Christ, do yourself no harm. We are all here. The source of your despair is unreal. It is a fiction. 
What you believe to be true about the world is not right. My friends, we have many reasons to despair. And all around us are people who are perpetually falling into despair. But you know what? We are wrong. They are wrong. There is a reason for hope. There is a reason for life. There is a reason to persist. There is a reason to avoid doing harm. My friends, do yourselves no harm. Say to those who are despairing around you, do yourself no harm. We are all here. Christ is here. And we are here with you. You are not alone. Do not despair. Hope awakens in the heart. Light comes piercing into the dark prison. He rushes in and trembles before Paul and Silas falling headlong. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And this, he knows he is begging for his life. He knows that the God of the earthquake is with these men. He knows that the power to have freedom, to have liberty, is not within him. He's a dead man. His life is in their hands. Sirs, what must I do to keep you from running away? What must I do to repay this debt? I was a dead man one minute ago, and I am now alive. What do I owe you? How should I be saved from this debt? And Paul and Silas say, Give credit to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. You know one of the sweetest things about the book of Acts? It gives you these incredible insights on how to do evangelism. Paul and Silas give us an example of evangelistic activity. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Another story that I encountered in the uh, Jack Miller biography. He was in Ireland, and he saw a bunch of like gypsies driving by, and they, and they stopped in a rest stop. And Jack Miller said, let's go over and chat with them. And the pastor who was with them was like, what is wrong with you, man? Why do you want to do this? He walked over, and he knocked on the side of the van, and they swung the door open. He looks in, and he says, do any of you know Jesus? I'm Pastor Miller. I'm here to tell you guys about Jesus. Here, make room for me. And he climbed in and he told them about Jesus. Complete strangers. Is the man insane? Yes, probably. Insane with the love of God. Because this is what the gospel consists of. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Salvation lies in faith. Faith alone. That we should believe in Jesus. It lies in this, the person of Jesus. Not in our performance. Not in our obedience. Not in our strength and our wisdom and our goodness. It lies in faith in Christ. He and He alone saves. So in verse 32, they speak that word to Him and to His household. Believe. Come. Put your faith in Jesus. My friends, if you would be saved, you must believe in Jesus. If you would be saved of the turmoil in your heart, 
the sins and the sorrows about you, that slavery that is sapping life out of you and out of this world, it lies only in Christ. That you should believe in Him and trust Him. That He believes is evident in several ways. That true faith is at work within His heart is manifest in several ways. First, He washes their stripes. He makes restitution for the wrong of His fellow Romans. He brings them up out of the prison and with His hands He washes their wounds. And he treats their hurts. He applies to them this appeal to grace and to forgiveness. That in that same hour of the night that they are washed, he himself is then washed. Notice the comparison right there in verse 33. Even as he has washed Paul and Silas, declaring his apology for their abuse, he in turn is then washed by Paul and Silas. And received through baptism into the church. Roman no longer Christian now forever. He has abandoned and set aside that which was Roman in Philippi. And embraced in his baptism a new identity. A washer of saints. A caretaker of those who are afflicted and wounded. In just a few verses prior. He was laying stocks and chains upon them. But now he is washing them in their freedom and liberty. He is not the man he was an hour ago. Christ has entirely changed him. This is what comes to us when we believe in Jesus. We become new creations. New people in Christ Jesus. Walking no longer in the injustice of our former life. Walking no longer... In the evil ways we have learned on earth. But becoming heavenly citizens. Baptized into his house. Secondly in verse 34. He sets before them food. And welcomes them with all his household. He gives them hospitality. He brings them into his house. And he feeds them. This is the man who just a few hours ago. Was taking them into the very heart of the prison. He is a new creation in Christ Jesus. No longer will he enslave fellow humans. Rather, he will wash their wounds. No longer will he shackle and chains the fellow humans. Rather, he will feed them and welcome them into his house. This is the great transformation that comes upon a Christian. We act now in love and service to others and not for their hurt. Last of all, my friends, verse 34, he rejoices. Do you know that a fruit of the Spirit is love, joy? It's joy. You know that James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many kind. Do you know that it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross and despised its shame. There is such joy in knowing Jesus. Such joy in opening our lives and our love to one another and meeting their needs regardless of the cost. There is such joy in washing wounds, in clothing the naked, housing the homeless, feeding the hungry. 
There is such joy in becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus. Hence the biography was entitled, Cheer Up. Because the rest of Jack Miller's phrase was, Cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. And Jesus is better than you could have ever imagined. Cheer up, my friends. There is such joy in our Jesus that even in the pit of prison we could sing His psalms, we could offer our prayers, we could have hearts that awaken with joy. He is worthy. And so the next morning, this theme comes to its final climax. Having set the slave girl free, having in turn been imprisoned themselves, having by the earthquake been set free and in turn set the jailer free through faith in Christ, they now at last are told in verse 35, let those men go free. The jailer comes back with joy. The magistrates have spoken. They have sent to let you go. Depart. Go in peace. Perhaps to his great surprise, Paul and Silas say, no, No, we cannot go in peace. You see, they slandered us and lied about us. You see, they beat us and they imprisoned us. Uncondemned Romans. You see, we have rights. We aren't just mere Jews. We're Roman citizens. And we have legal rights that they have trampled on. Why would Paul suddenly assert his Roman citizenship. Why didn't he do it the day before? I'm not sure. I'm not sure why he didn't do it the day before. Maybe he did. Maybe he was shouting, I'm a Roman citizen, and they were ignoring him. But maybe he didn't say anything. Maybe he was willing to suffer for the gospel. And when the time was right, he pulled out this Roman citizenship for the health and well-being of the church that he might purchase for Lydia and the jailer peace. You see, if Paul and Silas walk silently out of the city, then the narrative that was established the day before endures. They are traitorous troublemakers. But if Paul and Silas stand fast and make the magistrates appear before them and admit publicly their wrong, they set that baby church on good footing. That that baby church is in fact a source of peace, not trouble, not treachery. They reverse the narrative and they say, no, you've got it all wrong. We are here to bring peace. We are here to bring joy to the city. When the righteous thrive, says Proverbs, there is rejoicing in the city. My friends, we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We are the fountain of joy in this joyless world. Letting sinners persist in their immorality will bring no peace to our land. Our silence will bring no peace. No, if we are to have peace in this city, then we must have Christ preached, Christ shared, Christ proclaimed. And so it is that the magistrates come. Filled with fear, humbled thoroughly by their injustice and their abuse. And they plead with them. They bring them out and ask them, please depart from the city. Please bring an end to our torment. 
Paul and Silas do come out, but they don't leave the city right away. Instead, they go to Lydia's house. They're in the driver's seat now. And they go into the house of Lydia, and there they see the brethren, and they encourage them and depart. My friends, I hope this day you are encouraged by Paul and Silas. Not merely by their example. Go and be brave like Paul. Go and be courageous like Silas. No, if we are to be encouraged, that is filled with courage to face the monsters within us and about us, then, my friends, we are to find something deeper than Paul and Silas's example. We are to find a prince of peace in whom we have a peace that passes all understanding. A prince of peace in whose peace our, our wild and wayward hearts are brought to heal and to obey. You see, my friends, it is Jesus' peace that sets us free. That sets us free from worry and stress and care. It is Jesus' peace that sets us free from sin and sorrow. It is Jesus' peace that lets us walk in liberty no matter how many chains this world lays upon us. That we could abound in freedom. My friends, Jesus' peace sets us free. So I beg you, draw near to him and stay close to him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I give you thanks for this good news. That Jesus has destroyed the power of Satan. That this Jesus has destroyed the power of sin. And that this Jesus destroys the power of persecutors. That his people might ever and always go free. We give you thanks that as the Prince of Peace, he reigns over us and conquers all his and our enemies. And our Father, we give you thanks that out of this good news today, we have every reason to be much in prayer and much in song. Father, forgive us that we pray so little. Father, forgive us that we sing so little. Father, forgive us for the great sinful silence that falls upon us day by day. But Father, let us this morning remember the great hope we have in Christ and bring forth the praises of our God and the petitions of our hearts. For this we ask in his name. Amen. Amen.